Today on Peace Talks Radio, what happens if you teach peaceful meditation techniques to school kids? Imagine yourself angry, and, and we all make an angry face. As we have that angry face, then we breathe in, and let's all breathe out. And as they're breathing in, their angry face is kind of going away. And of course, we're only pretending. Being it goes angry, away. It goes the, away, the angry right? face right. goes away. Right. But I follow it with, what are we going to do with that anger? Because like I said before, it doesn't necessarily go away. What happens is that the first students who try it, what you might call the early adopters, they are often surprised that it's easier than they thought it would be and that it, it is calming. It does give them a positive effect of something that they're looking for, a little bit of peace and quiet in their life. And so then they begin to tell the other students that, hey, maybe this isn't as bad as you thought. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today on Peace Talks Radio, we're exploring two efforts at bringing peaceful meditation techniques directly into schools to help students deal with all the typical stress of school, and in some cases, the stress of their lives at home and on the streets. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Elementary school, middle school, high school, any inner turmoil or group conflict in those environments? Yikes! It can be pretty loaded with teachers and homework to deal with, other students to deal with, sometimes bullying, at some point your own hormones to deal with, and the noise. Well, some students just find that alone a challenge. Um, well, students like to talk. The announcements are pretty loud sometimes. Bells are ringing. That's Evan, 10 years old, in elementary school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, we just met Evan when his dad brought him to our studio, and Evan seemed pretty chilled and calm then. He's here to tell us what he had a chance to try in 2014 and 2015, during school to help keep him that way. A special series of 10 classes that offered instruction on mindfulness meditation, bringing the students in touch with some purposeful quiet time, a chance to understand their emotions, and learn some techniques for dealing with school time stress. Suzanne Kreider talked with Evan. How does mindfulness help that? Well, it helps me clear my thoughts and it would make me calm by like changing what I would think about. Like what? Well, like if I think about something like schoolwork, um, I could come to think about food. Aha. So your brain is thinking one thing, maybe it's stressful. Mm -hmm. You do mindfulness and then you can think of something else. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Wow, that's cool. Now, tell me about the class. What do you do in the class? Well, so at the beginning, he will tell us what we do, like if we're doing mindful breathing or mindful listening. And then he would tell us what you need to focus on, like focus on your breath going in and out. And so we would think of her breath going in and out. The he that Evan's talking about doing instruction in this case with Evan at his school is Scott Cameron, co-founder of a nonprofit organization in Albuquerque called Families for Peace, for spelled with a numeric for, which has also advocated for gun safety practices and legislation. 
But Scott Cameron has been volunteering his time, too, to bring these mindfulness training exercises to students in whichever school will have him. Later, we'll hear about a success story with meditation training in some California schools, too, from Jeff Rice of the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education. But first, here's Suzanne Kreider with Scott Cameron. What's mindfulness? The, I guess, classic definition of it is non-judgmental present-time awareness. That's the MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction definition of it, which is the adult version of mindfulness. Uh, When I teach it to kids, I explain it to them as paying attention or being focused or being aware of your emotions or what's happening in your mind. And that's something I think that resonates with them a lot better than that wordy definition of present-time judgmental awareness. Why teach it? Like, why not be with adults? I think that teaching it to kids is a means of reducing violence. I think that children are much closer to their own innate mindfulness, so it's easier to teach it to them and get them to connect to it. And I think that children a lot of times are raised with a lack of awareness of their own emotions and of how to deal with their own emotions. And that leads to, uh, at times as they get older, violence. Is there research that shows it really reduces violence? There's a lot of research that's starting to come out about mindfulness and working with kids uh, and also with adults. I'm not sure if it specifically goes to, you know, whether a, a child who learns mindfulness is either more or less capable of committing acts of violence later in life. But I think it goes more to whether children or adults who learn mindfulness techniques are better in control of their emotions and better able to handle their emotions. To me, that being able to better recognize and deal with your emotions naturally leads to more peace and less violence. The shooting instance in schools is actually what a lot of what brought me to this work. Um, after Sandy Hook, after the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut uh, in 2012, late 2012, uh, I had just learned how to teach mindfulness to kids, frankly, to selfishly teach it to my own kids. But at that time, um, I was very touched by that incident. I grew up near there. I actually, it turns out I have a cousin who I hadn't seen in years whose children go to that school. So it really struck home for me. I started looking into the issue of school shootings, of mass shootings. And I came across a report in USA Today. It was sometime in 2013, I think, or right around there. And they had looked at mass shootings over year, over the years. And they defined it as, I think, four or more people killed in one incident. And what really struck me was that uh, a common theme running through those shootings was typically a male, typically in their 20s or late teens, not, you know, not very old, but um, who something really bad had happened to them. They had some bad experience, some bad emotional experience that they were unable to deal with. It was, it was almost that simple. They had um, strong emotions like we all have, but they were incapable of dealing with those emotions at all. And... Again, it seems to me that mindfulness is a, is a means of being able to recognize those emotions and being able to do something with those emotions other than just react to them. So I really believe that if more children especially were to learn mindfulness, learn to recognize and work with their emotions, that it would lead to a, 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 it would result in less violence and less shootings. 
When you say they do something else with their feelings, what could they do with them if they're having these strong feelings? Mm -hmm. First of all, recognize those strong feelings because I think a lot of times people have feelings of anger or sadness uh, and they don't, they never take the time to see it. They just uh, either ignore it or try and kind of gloss over it and say, oh, I'm not, you know, that angry or I'm not that sad about something. And as we all know, and I, and I talk to the kids about this, it's not like the anger or the sadness, that deep emotion just goes away on its own for the most part. It's still there and it's going to come out somewhere. What I'm talking about is really instead of trying to either ignore or kind of wish away your emotions, really turning towards them. And I think this is a great misconception that people have about mindfulness is that um, it's all about kind of checking out and, and just you're able to disengage and just not have to deal with anything. But it's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a turning towards and it's a direct engagement with whatever those emotions or feelings or experiences are and working with the kids on how to turn towards those things and really spend some time with them. And then by doing so, being able to recognize what a proper response is to those emotions instead of what a just a gut reaction or a quick reaction is to them, right? And I talk to the kids about, you know, raise your hand if you've ever gotten angry. So all the kids raise their hand, right? <laughs> yeah. And we all would in this room. Um, so raise your hands if you've ever gotten angry. And then I talk about raise your hand if you have a sibling. And almost every hand, even a lot of kids have brothers or sisters um, or cousins. You know, if they, if they don't raise their hands, then do you have a cousin who's around your age, whatever. So they almost all, or you have a good friend, right? And then I talk about, you know, what happens when you get angry at your good friend, your cousin, your brother, your sister. What's that thing that you've done that you wish you hadn't done? And then we kind of go around the room. I oh. hit them. I scratched them. I screamed at them. I, you know, broke their doll. I, I ignored them. Ignored, <laughs> ignored them. Any number of reactions that are possibly not very skillful. And then we actually practice a little bit of mindfulness. We'll sit and we'll follow our breath. And at this point, we're, I don't know, at least a third, maybe halfway into the classes that I'm teaching the kids. We start small and we build on them. So at this point, we've learned how to sit quietly and follow our breath. And so we talk about, let's follow our breath for a moment. Let's recognize that anger and, and how we're feeling towards that person. Imagine yourself angry, and, and we all make an angry face, and we, you know, we grunt a little bit or whatever. The kids fun. really get into it. Yeah, right? it's the kids fun. really get into it. Yeah, it's very demonstrative for them. Very, you know, they, they really experience it. And then as we have that angry face, then we breathe in. Let's all breathe in, and let's all breathe out. And then we do that for, if I'm starting small, we'll do it for three breaths, or we'll do it for a half a minute or a minute, or depending on where we are in the class. We'll do it for a certain amount of time. And then we'll talk about, you know, as you breathe in, what happened with your anger, right? And for the most part, you know, their fa you can see it on their faces as they're, because they're sitting there and they're making their angry face. And as they're breathing in, their angry face is kind of going away. And of course, we're only pretending at that point, but huh. it's analogous to being angry. It goes angry. away. It goes the, away, the right? angry face right. goes away. Right. And so, but I follow it with not just that, all right, we sat and we breathed and the angry, the anger went away, but... What are we going to do with that anger? Because like I said before, it doesn't necessarily go away, yeah. right? So yeah. you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. So then we talk about responding versus reacting and how if you can sit and take a few breaths, and, you know, a few breaths or sit for a minute or whatever and sit with that emotion, with that anger, it'll help you come to a response. So what's a better response, you know, better than hitting your little brother who just, you know, took your toy? What's a better response? You know, well, I could ask him to give it back to me. That's a better response. I could tell my mom and dad. You know, so we go through the list mm, and we, we okay. go around the classroom and all the kids jump in and, 
you know, at some points it's total chaos because they're all yelling out answers. But um, that's okay because yeah. they're seeing that there are so many other responses. Yeah, well, <clears throat> are there other responses our listeners could use, like adults could use? Well, I think it's very similar uh, for adults in terms of anger, and I'll use myself as an example. Um, <laughs> when I get angry, and I raise my hand when I'm in that class with the kids, you know, a better response than yelling is talking, right, and telling somebody how you feel. I feel angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to get too, I don't know, psychoanalytical or whatever, and like, let's all make an I feel statement. But I think that this translates to adults as well in terms of, um, talking about how do you feel? How did that make you feel when that person did that? And what what was your reaction? You know, what did you want to do? Right? I wanted to scream, but what's a better way to respond? Right? I know you're laughing, but this is just really translates. It's right? It's true. No, I'm laughing. I see this in my daily life. I mean, yeah, it's so true. I said that one time. I said an I statement to mm-hmm. a guy I was dating. Mm-hmm. He looked at me and said, "Is this like the peace talk stuff?" <laughs> There I was you like, go. yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. So in, in terms of uh, peace and nonviolence, um, uh, I am, for the most part, pretty optimistic and occasionally very mm-hmm. foolishly optimistic. But as we're speaking about this, I'm imagining in my mind, what if, as adults, we were able to do this? Instead of screaming and yelling at each other, hitting each other, shooting each other, we were able to talk about how we're feeling and what's going on and try and get into a dialogue and a conversation and come up with responses instead of reactions. What kind of a different world would we live in? And if we could learn that as children, then we're going to grow up doing that and we're going to teach that to our children. And many times I use my own experience as a child who went through many traumatic experiences who did not have the language, did not have my, no, you know, mindfulness. There was nothing, you know, back then. Did not have this skill, did not have this ability. Um, and I really wish I did. And so I really want to share that with kids because I just think it's just so valuable. It's done a lot for me in my adult life. I wish I had learned it earlier because it really could have helped me in my younger life. That's Scott Cameron talking about his teaching of mindfulness meditation to school kids in Albuquerque. More with him in our longer version of this show, plus our complete interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. So back now to someone who is getting this training earlier in life, Evan, a 10-year-old who took a couple of Scott's mindfulness classes at his elementary school in Albuquerque, talking with Suzanne Kreider. Well, Evan, it sounds like you wanted to do this interview, so how come? Well, I wanted to do it because it would be pretty cool to be on the radio. I just wanted to help Scott on his interview. Some people think mindfulness is kind of a weird thing. Do you think that? No, I think it's to calm your body. What does that mean? It will make you relax and make not make you stressed, clear your thoughts. Yeah. Our show is about peace building and peacemaking and getting along. Do you think mindfulness impacts getting along or peace? Mm, it does. Like if you're angry and you want to like throw something, if you do mindfulness, it would calm you down so you just would walk away. Huh. You'd walk away. Yeah. So I get mad that I walk away. I should have done that. This weekend I was with my sister. She's fiddly different. <laughs> than me (laughs) so when you're around people who are different from you you just sometimes you get upset you walk away Mm -hmm. 
Okay. How about when you're with other people? How does mindfulness impact how you are? Well, sometimes when I'm with friends or with my brother, I would get into a fight. So I would just probably go into a different room and probably do mindful breathing to calm me down and to calm my breath down. What if someone came up and punched you in the stomach? Um, They were, like, really mad. So I would probably say, don't do that again, and then I'd probably walk away Hmm. and do mindfulness. How come you wouldn't punch them back? Well, if you do mindfulness, it will calm you down, and so it won't make you want to hit them back. What does it do to make you calm? Because I get mad about stuff. Um, well, it would change, like I said earlier, it would change your mind to focus on another thing. Yeah, so when you're punched, you think of something else. Would there ever be a case, a time when you get punched and you tell the other person, hey, do the breathing? Or would you do that? Teach them or not? Mm. Well, if I see him a lot, like if I see my brother a lot, I would teach him. Yeah. But if it's like someone like in my class, I wouldn't. Yeah. When you think of yourself in the future, like in, you know, high school, do you think you'll be doing mindfulness? Um, Occasionally and usually, yes. How come? Well, it's fun to calm yourself down and to what well, kind of gives you rest so you're not always, so you're like not always stressed out. Okay. Yeah, it's a rest. Mhm. And how long do you have to do it to get to the point of rest? Um, well, it doesn't take that long if you're not distracted. It could take like 2 minutes if you're not distracted. Okay. More from Evan also later in our program. But next, to San Francisco, where a program called Quiet Time is, well, making some noise, in a good way. Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Suzanne Kreider. Today, a bit about programs that are taking some peaceful meditation training into middle schools and high schools. 
a program that's been at it since 2007 in several schools in the San Francisco Bay Area is now getting national attention from the likes of NBC News. At first glance, Visitation Valley School in San Francisco looks like an ordinary, chaotic middle school. But twice a day, something out of the ordinary happens that has changed everything. It is the sound of silence. Eight years ago, in the heart of one of the city's poorest and most violent neighborhoods, the school was spiraling out of control. There'd be fights here three to five times a week. Uh, the kids see guns on a daily basis. They see all sorts of weaponry. They have that baggage with them. Desperate, the district tried a pioneering program called Quiet Time. Ignore the sounds you hear outside, upstairs, in the, the hallway. The idea, give them two 15-minute periods a day to close their eyes and let go of the stresses in their lives. Here at Peace Talks Radio, Suzanne Kreider talked with the operations director of the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education, the organization that brought quiet time to some troubled schools in the Bay Area. Here's Jeff Rice. Quiet time, what they do during that time is uh, theoretically up to them, but we, of course, encourage them to do meditation because we have found it to be the most productive use of that quiet time. The meditation that we use uh, is a particular form of, of meditation known as uh, transcendental meditation or TM. Now, the students are free to practice some other form of meditation or just be quiet, or sometimes they can engage in quiet reading if they choose, but uh, we, of course, encourage them uh, to practice the, the TM. You mentioned that this quiet time reduces violence and fighting. What evidence do you have that shows it's being reduced? Well, in the first school that we did at Visitation Valley Middle School in uh, San Francisco, in the first 90 days, we taught just the 6th and 7th grade, and we didn't teach the 8th grade, and so we could use them as a control. And this school had been known for having a lot of fighting, a lot of violence, a lot of suspensions, and actually they had to have uh, a San Francisco uh, sheriff's car and two private security guards on campus at all times just to try to manage the situation. Most of the fighting would go on during the physical education periods. And somewhat to our surprise, the head of the physical education department came to us after about a month and a half and said that, that he'd noticed a distinct uh, reduction in fighting in his classes. At the end of the first 90 days, it was about a 45% reduction. And because, you know, fighting and violence uh, are one of the biggest reasons that they have to suspend a student, suspensions were also reduced a similar amount. This trend continued over the, the next uh, several years. Uh, eventually, the principal said we got up to uh, almost an 80% reduction in uh, suspensions compared to where they were before we came. And a lot of people thought that that uh, might have been a fluke until we started our second school, which was the high school around the corner at Burton High School. And at that school, they had similar results. Uh, in the first year of quiet time, they reduced their suspensions by 50%, much to the principal's surprise. And in the second year, they reduced it another 50%, so a total of 75% over two years. I'm curious how the students react? Like, do they like it? Do they like being quiet? Or do they hate that? 
Well, that's a very interesting question, too. When, when we first got there, I think everyone was quite surprised at, at what we were suggesting, and maybe they couldn't even believe what we were suggesting, both the teachers and the students. In fact, uh, we explained the whole theory to the teachers, and, and they would say, well, this sounds really great. Who wouldn't want their students to be more calm and more focused? But we don't think it's possible that you will ever get them to sit there for even one minute quietly, much less 10, 15 minutes twice a day. In fact, some of the teachers didn't even think that they would be capable of doing it, and uh, most of them were surprised that they could. But even after the teachers learned to do it, they were still very skeptical of whether the students could do it. And frankly, when we walked into the first school, it was so chaotic, we were not sure ourselves if that was really going to be possible on a mass scale. The students themselves, their reactions vary. Some of them are willing to try it. Others are not willing to try it. Some of them would be very vocal in their resistance. They would say it was crazy, that that they shouldn't have to try to do this. We just go with the flow in that regard. Those students that are willing to try it, we teach them. And of course, we have to send a note home to their parents and tell them what we're doing, and they have to get signed permission back. But what happens is that the first students who try it, what you might call the early adopters, they are often surprised that it's easier than they thought it would be and that it it is calming. It does give them a positive effect of something that they're looking for, a little bit of peace and quiet in their life. And so then they begin to tell the other students that, hey, maybe this isn't as bad as you thought. And so little by little, we work our way up until hopefully we get uh, most of the students trained. And you mentioned peace and quiet, but sometimes it's hard to reach students in this age of like social media and telephones and they have their, you know, technology. So I'm curious, how do you make quiet time attractive when they're not used to this peace and quiet? Well, uh, that's a very good point. And I would say that, you know, the social media and cell phones and iPods and television, radio, and all of the other um, sources of noise in our environment uh, are sometimes one of the biggest sources of distraction and then even stress in a, in a child's life. But I think that every person, and that includes every child, does have a certain level of quietness and peacefulness within them that is enjoyable, that they miss And maybe sometimes they're overindulging in social media and these things in in a search for that inner quietness and perhaps contentment that they can't find, even though they try more and more and more stimulating things and they still don't find what they're looking for. So there's always a few students that are willing to give it a a try. And when they come back and they say, wow, that, that actually was really good and I'm starting to feel calmer, I feel better, they start to discover that there is something that they want out of that experience and that's what they begin to convey to the other students. Yeah, it sounds like almost like being peaceful is like a goal. Is that true? They're trying to get the peace? Well, uh, that is a goal, although that's not a method. Now, let's see if I can explain the difference. We all want to find some peace. Even children who think that just frenetic stimulation is the best form of enjoyment are surprised at how much they enjoy finding some real inner peace. So a lot of them are very surprised. But 
you can't really find that inner peace by trying to manipulate the mind, by trying to force yourself to be peaceful. If you try to manipulate and control the mind, you usually have just the opposite effect. So that's where the technique of meditation comes in. It's a way of achieving peacefulness and even more importantly, beginning to remove the obstacles within the nervous system that prevent us from experiencing peacefulness on a daily basis. And that's what meditation and the effects of meditation are all about. But there's no question that anyone, once they experience a deep enough level of that peacefulness within themselves, finds it to be, if not enjoyable, at least something that they can uh, uh, look forward to. This is Peace Talks Radio, and we're talking with Jeff Rice, Director of Operations at the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education in San Francisco, California. The center teaches transcendental meditation to students. Jeff, what tips can you give to our listeners who are curious about how to do quiet time? I think the first thing is to call us up and... uh, ask questions about how it might be implemented in your particular uh, situation, and then to have meetings with the teachers and see how they uh, feel about the general idea. We've we've done research on this program, 17 studies, in fact, over the last uh, eight years, and we have a draft of that research that they might be able to review. Because one of the most important things is that everyone uh, in the administration and the staff the teachers of the school is thoroughly behind the idea and committed to making it work and implementing it with uh, what we call fidelity. It's not an easy program to do in a public school. It does take the full commitment of everyone involved, but we feel the results are worth it. What if I'm just a person listening right now? I just want to do some quiet time for myself. I don't have a school or anything like that to contact. Are there any tips you can give on what people could do? Well, um, certainly if you wanted to learn the full meditation, it takes, uh, it takes four or five days, about an hour and a half a day to uh, tr- train someone that. But if you wanted to do sort of a preliminary preparation, you could just sit with your eyes closed and don't try to do anything. Don't try to relax. Uh, don't try to push out your thoughts or have a particular experience, just sit there and let your mind and your body do uh, what it wants. And that's uh, sort of the first step of learning a a deep meditation like this. And um, you might be surprised at uh, the effects you could have just from doing that. But certainly, once you learn the full meditation, the the experience is much, much deeper. What kind of effects do you think people could have? Well, whenever we slow ourselves down, whenever we take a moment, um, the body begins to rejuvenate and, and repair itself. So you might notice a little bit of that kind of relief, a, a little bit of a rest effect. Anytime we slow ourselves down from some activity, the body starts Um, recuperating a little bit, and you can notice that sometimes just in a few minutes. When I think of TM, I think of like a mantra. Do you use a mantra with the students, and how does TM compare to mindfulness? Well, uh, TM does use a mantra, 
A lot of people are unsure what that term really means. In our context, it's simply a sound, uh, a word without meaning, but with a specific sound that has the effect of helping the body to relax. Does everybody use the same sound? No. um, There are different sounds for different people, not a different one for everyone on Earth, but sort of like blood types, maybe a couple of dozen different sounds that are used that are appropriate for certain ages and so on. I've heard sometimes that transcendental meditation likes to keep the sounds secret, and I'm curious, are you able to give examples of some of the sounds? No, no, I can't give examples, but they're very simple. You know, they're sounds that are included in every language. You know, every language is made up of maybe a, a finite range of sounds, and it's how you put those sounds together that makes a word, and then we ascribe some meaning to that word. But we know that the sound itself has an effect on, on the body and the mind and the emotions. That's what poetry is all about, where it's not just the meaning of the word, but it's the sound of the words that gives a certain meaning. And of course, that's what music is all about. The science of meditation is all about the science of how different sounds affect the body. And it, It's been around for thousands of years, and it's a highly refined science. They understand uh, a lot about how different sounds affect different types of people. Like, you know, some people, they might relax to uh, country and Western music, but to someone else, maybe that's not that relaxing to them. They have to listen to, to jazz or classical. So we know there's differences between people, too. And understanding more specifically and at a deeper level how different sounds affect a person and affect different people is a lot of what the science of meditation is all about. So that's why there are different sounds or different mantras for different people. They do the quiet time twice a day. Do students do quiet time outside of class? And do they do it like at home or other places? Yes, uh, students are encouraged to, to do their, uh, their quiet time meditation at home on the weekends and over holidays. In these schools, sometimes the homes that they go back to are not uh, always conducive to, to being able to sit quietly for a period of time. Sometimes they're, it's rather chaotic at home. So uh, I don't think that a lot of students uh, do that, but some do, and they're certainly encouraged to do that. Uh, the teachers, of course, we train all the teachers first, and um, they normally practice their meditation at home uh, before and after school. I should say that when, when we go into a school, we, we first teach all the teachers and staff and administration in the school. That's the first thing we do. We get them to meditate, to get them strong in their practice um, so that they'll, they'll understand what the students are going to be going through, and that also so that they'll start to uh, demonstrate and express those qualities that we expect to see from meditating, being more patient, being calmer, um, being a little happier. And then the students see those qualities, and then that makes the students want to, uh, to have those qualities for themselves. So it's very important to, to get the teachers and staff strong in their quiet time first. That's Jeff Rice. Operations Director of the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education, the organization that brought quiet time to troubled schools in the San Francisco Bay Area and now to other schools around the country as well. 
We'll hear some more from him later in our show, and our complete interview can be heard at peacetalksradio.com. And we'll also go back to Albuquerque to hear more from Scott Cameron, who's helping bring meditation techniques into some schools there. And we'll hear a little bit more from one of his students, Evan. All in Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today on Peace Talks Radio, we're exploring two efforts at bringing peaceful meditation techniques directly into schools to help students deal with all the typical stress of school, and in some cases, the stress of their lives at home and on the streets. Scott Cameron is a fellow who started a nonprofit organization in Albuquerque to do two things. One is to help promote gun safety techniques and gun safety legislation that he thinks would help cut down on school shootings and gun violence. But also, he's initiated a meditation course that some schools in Albuquerque have let him try with their students. He's talking with our Suzanne Kreider. Scott, you said your children have been in classes with you. Yes. How do they feel about mindfulness? Yeah. Um, it's funny that uh, it's uh, so much easier to teach other kids' children than to teach your own children. Um, However, when they are in class with me, they're great students. And they've been in a few classes with me as they've gone through different grades. And I've come in and taught in those same grades. Um, so they're kind of the, you know, the, the experts, right, the old school guys. Um, so they're very good students when we're there. Um, they very rarely practice it at home, uh, either on their own or with me. That's kind of the point I try to express to the parents, really, is you know, you can't make them do it as much as you can't make them eat or, you know, sleep or whatever, but you can expose them to it. You can model it for them. I think it's really important for adults who are working with kids that have their own practice because kids are really good at kind of seeing through, like, you know, you're just faking it, right? If you don't have your own solid practice and, and you're really modeling it for them, then they don't really pick up on it very well, I don't think. How about other kids? Do they do mindfulness outside of the class? Other kids who are in the class? Yeah. Yeah, from what I hear from them, they do. Um, And Mm. uh, I encourage them to bring it home. Um, I, before I start a class, I always send a letter home to the parents explaining what I'm going to do and giving them the chance to opt their kids out. Some kids, when I first start, it's obvious that they've practiced at home before because they'll sit in a certain way or put their their uh, index finger and their thumb together on their knees, like kind of in a yogic kind of meditative way. So it's clear that they've had some experience with it. So I think... 
their parents sometimes have it already. We always share a little bit at the beginning of each class, and I'll ask the kids, you know, did you practice since the last time I saw you? Um, and it's always interesting when the kids say, yeah, you know, I was at home, and uh, my dad was getting mad at my younger brother, and I told my dad to just be mindful. And I always think, whoa, what was <laughs> Like, how did he react to that? Um, <laughs> cool. And so far, so good. I've never had a kid saying, he got really mad at me for saying that. He wants to know how to get in touch with you. Um, so it's been a positive experience. I feel like it's trickled out into at least some of those households. And late last year, uh, I had the opportunity to teach um, a mindful family class. So I worked with parents and their kids outside of the school system. Um, and that was a really nice experience to work with families, adults who are interested in learning mm -hmm. along with their kids. So parents can opt out of class. I'm they can curious, opt their children out. Yes. Yeah, I'm curious, like, what percentage <clears throat> do that? Um, so I've taught... Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, maybe a dozen classes. So, and there's maybe 20, 30 kids in a class. So 250, maybe 300 kids over the past few years. Um, and I've had one uh, kid opt out that That's whole time. it? Yeah. Wow. So That's whatever percentage low. that is, I'm not very good at math. But. Mindfulness sounds kind of religious. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you do about the whole thing to make it non-denominational. Is, yeah. it, is it kind of religious? Well, I'm... It, I mean, every religion has a mindfulness tradition. I think it has a lot of its strongest roots in Buddhism um, as a tradition. Um, but I'm very careful to make it very not very non-religious, very secular. I don't ever talk about any any religion when I'm talking about mindfulness. Um, I don't talk about meditation. That's, I refer to it as mindfulness, um, and I, I I want to you know be very careful about respecting um, parents and children's whatever their religious tradition is, whatever their beliefs are, I think mindfulness is applicable to anybody, anywhere, anytime. So I never bring any of that into it. And I think that sitting quietly only uh, seems religious because it's so not prevalent in the rest of society. And I think that's a shame because I think this is another, I think, great value to mindfulness to stopping and sitting and being quiet is it's what a great opportunity to just not even just, you know, in terms of nonviolence and all that other bigger stuff, but just in terms of like just doing that, just being quiet, just sitting still. That's so counter, I think, to what kids are indoctrinated into in terms of our society and our culture, right? Everything's move, move, you know, fast food, fast this, fast that, internet access all over the place. Is there ever any time to just sit quietly? I mean, school's a great place to to try that. And not to mention all the benefits in school. There have been some studies um, that are, again, slowly trickling out that show that kids have better attention, better focus, better grades. Um, there's, they have less truancy, less drop, you know, the dropout rates go down, less uh, fighting and violent acts going to that question that you asked at the beginning, um, things like that. So uh, I, I think it's got a lot of benefits. I wonder if young people have ever heard anybody say to them that being quiet is an activity. <laughs> so don't most kids think the only time you're really quiet is when you're sleeping? Hmm. I, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I think they're probably not very used to sitting and being quiet, especially with technology and our, you know, fast-paced world and things are always happening. And right, so kids, if I'm sitting quiet, I'm bored. Right, I need something to entertain me. But... The fact of the matter is that as you go through life, there are times when there's just nothing happening, right? You're going to be bored. There's not, you know, 
I think it's important for kids to understand, and I work with my own children on this to whatever effect, probably not great effect. Like I said, it's easier to work with other people's kids than your own. But, um, you know, life is, it's not, you know, it's not a big entertainment center. You know, at times there's going to be nothing happening and mm. you got to be able to deal with that. And if you can sit, if you have the ability to sit quietly, that's a great skill to have as you grow older. We heard earlier from one of Scott Cameron's students. Evan is now 10, and he talked more with Suzanne about his experience with learning meditation. What do your classmates think about it? Well, some of them aren't as interested, but some of them try to use it to focus on schoolwork and not get distracted. Evan, how come some people aren't interested? Um, well, they're not that calm, uh-huh. so they can't really get calm. Yeah, it's hard. It's harder. They're more excitable. Mm-hmm. They're revved up, or what word would you use there? Um, energetic. Energetic, yeah. When you took class, how many times did the teacher come? He came ten times. Ten. I did it in 2015 and 2014. Oh, two years. That's cool. So you're an expert. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Evan, when you're older, do you think this will help you? Yeah, so it would help me focus on, like, if I get a job, it would help me focus on a job. It would help me calm down. It will help me focus on a few specific things. Evan, thanks. You're welcome. Again, more from Scott Cameron. Scott, if our listeners want to practice a little of this silence, let's say maybe five minutes, what are some tips you would give on practicing? There's really not a lot of... uh, special uh, equipment or training that you need in order to practice this. All you need is to um, find a quiet, comfortable space in your home and make the time for it. Find, you know, you don't have to sit, you know, the Dalai Lama, I think, sits for, I don't know, eight hours a morning or something like that. You don't have to sit for eight hours a morning to get the benefits of mindfulness. Even just five minutes, as you mentioned, can be very valuable, uh, especially at the start of a day, in, in my experience. Um, so all they really need, really need is a quiet place to sit comfortably. They can lay on the floor if they want to, if that makes them more comfortable. And it, there's so many online resources in terms of guided meditations and videos and whatever. But the basic practice is just sitting and paying attention to what happens when you sit there quietly. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, if people's experience is similar to mine and experiences that I've read, that people will be shocked and amazed to see what happens when they sit there for five minutes. Like what? Because I, I used to be a coach, and I would talk to a lot of leaders, and they'd say things like, I'm so judgmental. No, really, I'm really judgmental. I'm like, yeah, so what? Mm-hmm. So what happens normally when people sit quietly? Well, what happens is you notice that uh, there's a lot of things happening in your head that are happening all day long as you're out in the world. Some things are judgmental. Some things are you're rehashing the past. You're predicting the future. You're um, trying to remember what you need to buy at the store that day. But rarely are you in that moment. 
rarely are you in that moment. Your mind is almost constantly running, going, right? And if you never realize that, many times whatever your mind is saying or doing or rehashing or whatever, that's what you're doing. That's you're you're just wholesale doing whatever is happening in your mind, believing whatever is happening in your mind. There's a quote somewhere about, you know, don't believe everything you think. Um, and practicing mindfulness gives you the ability to see what's happening. So if you sit there for five minutes, I think people would be shocked and amazed at everything that's going on in their mind that they had no idea. And then if you practice more, um, you start to notice more. And if you practice throughout the day, even like a minute of mindfulness, you're sitting at your desk before you check your emails, before you answer the phone, whatever, um, mindful walking from your car in the parking lot to your office, you'll notice, again, throughout the day, your mind is just, there's just, it's just constantly going, 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 going. Well, what's better about being present than just, you know, kind of being reactive? What's better about that? The only way to experience life is in the present. I mean, if you're not living in the present, you're either in the future or in the past. So? <laughs> so you're missing everything that's happening to you right then in that moment. I mean, life is only available to you in the present. It, what's happened has already happened, and what's going to happen has not happened yet. So you can't live, even though your mind is doing that constantly and you're being kind of dragged along with it like a dog on a leash, I guess, following along with that. If you're not in the present, you're not really experiencing life. And I think people know this, but they don't realize it. And the example I would give is, you know, depending on what you're into, I guess, my example is um, seeing the Sandias, uh, seeing a sunset on the Sandias, right? When it turns that amazing pink, that, right? And you're just, you are fully present for that moment. I mean, you, that is the, you are feeling that moment. But if you see it and you're doing a million other things or whatever, then you're not, you're not really feeling it. You're not really seeing it. You're not in that moment. Yeah, that's a great sunset, but I got to hurry up and get to the store. You're not, you're not there. There is plenty of time for thinking. You know, I'm not saying that you never think about the past or try and predict the future or try and work towards the future or have goals or anything like that. There's plenty of time for that when you want to be present for that. But if you're always attending to that, you're missing what's happening right here and right now. Yeah. Well, I've done lots of mindfulness, and I had a teacher one time say, you know, it's like taking out the garbage. Mm -hmm. That's all you're doing, really, is you, you notice the right. garbage is there, you take it out. Right. Okay, well, let's talk about students and technology and all this social media. And mm. so I'm curious how you make mindfulness, which is kind of nothing, mm. appealing mm -hmm. to them. Well, uh, one way to do it is to uh, direct them, especially older students, um, to one of the many mindfulness apps that there are out there. What do those apps do? Uh, there's a lot of different apps that do a lot of different things, but many of them have guided meditations on them. They have timers on them. Um, there's some that will send you reminders throughout the day to be more mindful. They'll do a little ring or a bell or something like that. There's others um, that will send not just a reminder to practice, but a like a question about like, you know, where's your head at right now? Or what, you know, where are your thoughts? Or what's in the present moment? Or things like that. Little things to kind of jog you into, oh, yeah, you know, where am I right now? Um, I have taught a class for teens before, so I know that there are at least a handful of apps that are specifically directed towards teenagers to try and make it hmm. a little more exciting for them a little something they'll something that can compete with 
everything else, you know, all the technology that's out there. I think another way to make it appealing is to talk about how uh, if you are being mindful and, you know, it's possible to mindfully use technology, right? So, um, and I talk about this with the younger kids with like video games and stuff, right? So we talk about the different definitions of mindfulness and how it's paying attention and being more focused. And what are the different ways that you can use being more focused? How could you be more focused? How could you pay better attention? And we talk about like you could listen better to your parents or and then some kid always picks up on it and goes, I could listen better to my teacher. And then they look over at their teacher and get that big <laughs> smile, right? So I'm like that good one. Um, but uh, we talk about sports and video games and TV and movies and stuff and how, huh. you know, you could practice mindfully watching, right? Instead of just kind of sit, you know, it, mindfulness isn't just a tool for dealing with hard emotions and whatever. It's also a means of better attending to whatever it is you happen to be doing, um, better focusing on things. And so, you know, I always ask them, did anybody practice mindfulness since the last time I saw you? And if it's over a weekend, every once in a while I'll get a kid who will say, I had a soccer game this weekend and I was playing and all of a sudden I thought about mindfulness in the middle of the game and I took a few breaths and then I scored a goal because I was just so much better. I mean, it, it's incredible out of the mouths huh. of babes, the kids, the stuff that kids tell me. Plus, I think mindfulness is becoming more and more mainstream over time. So it's not so kind of out there in terms of explaining it to kids or adults and having them be like, oh, that doesn't sound you know, like anything I even want to bother with because I'm too busy with all this other cool stuff. And here again, a bit more conversation with Jeff Rice, who is the operations director of a nonprofit organization called the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education in the San Francisco Bay Area. They've had some well-documented success implementing a transcendental meditation program called Quiet Time at a number of schools there. Suzanne asked Jeff Rice more about it. Do you think it's harder to get buy-in for quiet time from middle schoolers or from high schoolers? Well, that's another interesting question. The, there's, um, there's plus and minuses in, in both ways. Certainly middle schoolers, they're younger, and they're a little bit more used to accepting suggestions from people that they might consider to be uh, authorities or people that uh, you know, have their best interests in mind. Um, but on the other hand, middle schoolers don't quite have the attention span and the ability to focus that older kids do. So you gain a little bit on one side in that they might be willing to try something and go along with something. But on the other side, they don't quite have the capacity yet in their, in their particular stage of growth to, to focus and discipline themselves. So I would say it almost evens out. Then you go to high school and they are a little more mature, neurophysically speaking, and they have the capacity to discipline themselves more, but they're more independent in their thinking, and they really want to make their own decisions, and they don't necessarily want to uh, go along with anybody's suggestions unless they feel that uh, it's something they would suggest to themselves. So there's a sl slightly different emphasis uh, for success in high school. You started with Vistastion Valley in 2007. It sounds like it's grown to other schools. So how much has it grown, the quiet time? Visitation Valley uh, Middle School and Burton High School are still our, our premier sort of demonstration and laboratory schools where we're always trying different approaches and methods and refining our methods. So the bulk of our resources is... Uh, focus on those schools. And of course, every year, every semester, you get an influx of new students. Some of the students leave, they graduate, and new students come in. So we're constantly training and, and integrating new students in both schools. 
You're also having a changing of um, administration and faculty on an occasional basis. So there's always a lot of change that we're uh, adapting to in those schools. But there's at least uh, 15 other schools in the Bay Area that we have uh, tried pilot programs at or that we currently have smaller uh, pilot programs such as uh, Redwood High School in Redwood City. And did the schools come to you or do you go to the schools? Oh, it can be either way. Uh, I think it, it's tended to be schools that come to us, especially in the last six months. Uh, there's been a lot of media attention about this and we're, we've been getting calls from schools um, all over the Bay Area, all over California, and in fact, throughout the United States. And around the world, we've had uh, calls from school districts in at least 17 different countries. Uh, I think that once people realized that it was possible to do something like this, the idea that there would be something that could reduce the stress of their students and help them calm down, give them a, a chance to be able to focus and take some of the load off the teachers so that they could spend more of their energy on actually uh, teaching the the students and not as much just on classroom management. Um, this has been a, a long-standing need. So uh, there is a, a great interest in this program around the world and really now we're just uh, restricted by the amount of funding uh, necessary to, to implement the programs. Do you have schools give some money to try the program out? Well, there's a lot of schools that are interested and and they would like to contribute something to implementing a program. But as you know, schools are one of the most hard-pressed institutions in our country and, are, and around the world. They don't usually have enough money to do the things they are already trying to do. And so that is a, a, a big stumbling block for them now in most cases. Uh, they would love to have the program if it was free, um, but we're not able to do that yet. But we hope someday that there will be government, federal, and state funding available so that the, the cost can be uh, greatly reduced. That's Jeff Rice, Operations Director of the Center for Wellness and Achievement in Education, the organization that brought quiet time to troubled schools in the San Francisco Bay Area and now to other schools around the country as well. You can hear more from him in our longer version of the show and our complete interview with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. More from all of our guests there, links to their websites and other resources too. That's also where you'll find links to all the programs in our series going back to 2002. There you can hear the program streaming, download episodes, order CDs of many of them, and sign up for a monthly newsletter, a free podcast. And it's where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to Good Radio Shows Incorporated, the nonprofit media organization that produces this program, Peace Talks Radio, separate and apart from your local public radio station. Find out more at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also receive support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, KUNM at the University of New Mexico, and support also from a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.